Well, let's take the Word of God this evening, and if you please, turn in God's Word to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. <clears throat> it's the book of Psalms, but when we come to those individual Psalms, we say Psalm, right? Not Psalms. Uh, and so we're, we find ourselves at Psalm 4. And we're going to read that whole chapter, and we have been going back and forth on Wednesdays between the book of Proverbs and the book of Psalms. And I think it's important for us because the book of Psalms deals a lot with the soul. Uh, we talked about, we, saw, we just sung, it is well with my soul. Not, it is well with my finances, it is well with my home, it is well, no, no, it is well with my soul. The truth is... Uh, what P.P. Bliss was writing about um, was that no matter what the... It's not... It's Yeah, P.P. Bliss was the one who put the music to it. Spafford was the one who wrote the words. Um, the circumstances were not going well. He was dealing with difficulties and heartache, but yet he was able to sing it as well with my soul. The book of Proverbs teaches us how to make sure that we don't bring about devastation to ourselves by the decisions we make. That's what the book of Proverbs is about, right? Avoiding a lot of peril and heartache in our lives that often we can bring about on our own. The book of Psalms, though, says there are things that are outside of our hands that sometimes we just have to go through it with God. And so that, and we have to learn that it is well with our soul as long as God is with us. And so that's what the book of Psalms is about. Now, Psalm 4, let's begin reading verse 1. We'll read down to verse 8. So Psalm 4, verse 1, the Bible says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. That's a, um, a pause. There's been debate about what that actually means, but probably had to do with the instruments, but it would be time of pause. Uh, verse 3 but know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say... Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. I want to bring your attention to the first verse. Uh, it is difficult often to think about uh, the point of emphasis or the central focus of a particular psalm. Often there are several themes running throughout, but here I think that repeated throughout this psalm is the idea that the psalmist is asking the Lord to hear his prayer. In verse 1, he, he mentions that twice. At the beginning of verse 1, Hear when I call. At the end of verse 1, hear my prayer. At the end of verse 3, the Lord will hear when I call unto Him. And so, in the midst of the two times that He asks for the Lord to hear Him in verse 1, notice in the midst He says, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Uh, think about those words. Thou, the Lord, hast enlarged me when I was in distress. 
Now we're going to talk about that, but I'd like to preach this evening on this as we study Psalm 4. Enlarged in distress. Enlarged in distress. As we've looked at these Psalms, Psalm 1, 2, 3, now we come to Psalm 4, we've been talking about blessedness. What does it mean to live a blessed life, a blessed life? And uh, as we've looked here, we saw obviously uh, Psalm 1 dealt with, if we want to know blessedness, then we need to delight in the law of the Lord and we need to meditate in the law day and night. In Psalm 2, uh, those who put their trust in Him while the heathen rage, those will enjoy blessedness. They will know what it means uh, to be blessed. And then we also see in um, Psalm 3, he talks about here, we know the individual study refers to when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. And although this blessedness is not mentioned, it is definitely described by David because he says in the midst of this psalm in verse 5, I laid me down and slept, I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. And so what David is describing as he's fleeing for his life from his own son, so you're talking about the fear of death, the being brokenhearted over your son and his rebellion and his desire to overthrow you as the king and to take your place, and what he is describing for us here is a, um, a state of blessedness despite the difficulties that he was in. Now in this psalm, it's a little different psalm because the structure of this psalm in verse 1 is the psalmist asks the Lord to hear him. And so we find really the prayer of the saint in verse 1. And then from verse 2 down to verse 5, we kind of see the preaching to the sinner. Because notice he, he turns from verse 2 through verse 5 and he addresses not the Lord, but the sinner. Notice verse 2. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? But know, who is he talking about? The sons of men. Know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. He's still uh, speaking to the sons of men. He says, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. And so he's talking here to the sons of men. He's, if you, in a sense, he's preaching to them. And then we see... Not only verse 1, the prayer of the saint, then the preaching to the sinner, but we see lastly from verse 6 through verse 8, we see a, the pattern for satisfaction. And so the psalmist really develops verse 1. Because verse 1 is, Lord, hear me. I pray unto you, would you hear me? And in the midst of this, he asks for present help based on God's past faithfulness towards him. And then he speaks to the sinner about what God means to him. In a sense, the psalmist here is testifying often what we may do. When we've learned from God, when we look back at God's faithfulness in our lives, we can often testify and part of that testimony often may be to those who are the saints, who are the children of God, but it could be to those who are not the children of God. And we could declare God's faithfulness and even making that a challenge to them. And that's what the psalmist does. And then he describes, I think, once again, blessedness. What God means in this present life in the midst of difficulties. And so we're going to follow this structure. We're going to look first at the prayer of the saints. Then we're going to look at the preaching uh, to the sinners. And then we're going to look at the pattern of satisfaction. As we look at the prayer of the saints, we notice, first of all, the present prayer. Uh, he says here, as he begins this psalm, he says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. 
He says, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. So obviously, he is praying in the present, but his prayer is based upon the past faithfulness of God and what God has done for him the last time that he prayed and asked God to hear him. And at the end, he says, Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Now I want you to notice, I'm going to focus here on the beginning of verse 1 and the the end of verse 1, because the beginning says, Hear when I call, O God of my righteousness. And at the end, he says, Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And so twice he repeats that, and often we may think, well, why does he repeat that? Uh, You only need to say once, O God, hear me. But I want you to notice what accompanies his request for God to hear him. In the first part, he said, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. The second time, he says, Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. Now, I think it's interesting here because I think we can think about two themes in the Bible as we think about being the basis of God hearing our prayers. For example, the psalmist would write later, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will what? He will not hear me. And so when we come to the Lord, the basis of our, uh, of our approach to God is that we, there is no iniquity in our, in our heart that we kind of dismissed that we've learned to live with before we come before a holy God if He's going to hear our prayer. Now, this expression, O God of my righteousness, that's the only time in all of Scripture that that expression is used. It means here that God is not only the source of righteousness, but He is also the judge of my righteousness, and He is the one who will... Uh, uh, who, who, um, who sees my righteousness. And, and so here when he comes to God, he says, God, you, you know how I've been before you. The psalmist often does that. He says, you know my heart has been clean before you. Uh, even uh, Job says that when he prays to God. He asks God, he says, Lord, is, if there's anything in me, would you reveal if there's anything in my life? And so the psalmist comes honestly before the Lord and he wants to make sure that if there is any distress that comes upon his, his life, that comes in his life, it's not beca- been because of something he's done. Now we know that distress comes to those who may be, be, may be disobedient to the Lord. But we also know that sometimes distress comes to those who have been obedient to the Lord. And so here... He says, hear my, uh, when I call, O God of my righteousness. But then we have the second basis of prayer at the end of verse 1. He says, have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And so the second basis of us approaching God in prayer is simply the mercy of God. (laughs) You see, the fact that we don't deserve to be in His presence, but yet He hears us. And so the basis of us coming to God is not because of who we are, but it's based upon the mercy of God. And by the way, those go together. My righteousness, His mercy. My righteousness, He is the judge of our righteousness. But also as we come to God, it is based upon His mercy that we come to Him. Now in the midst of this, as we look at the prayer of the saint, we also see not only the present prayer, but we also see the past testimony of God's faithfulness. In the midst of those two requests for God to hear Him, He says, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Now, that's a peculiar thing to say as he's asking for God to, 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 as he's calling on God, asking for God to hear him. You know what he does here? He remembers back of a time when he was in distress. And he also remembers what God did for him when he was in distress. Notice the language says, 
Thou hast enlarged me. So the psalmist is referring to what God has done for him in the time of distress. And so based upon what God has done for him in time of distress, he comes to God once again in prayer. Now I'm interested in those two words. There's the word enlarged, and then there's the word distress. Let's start with the word distress. The word distress means uh, narrow or to be in a tight place. That's what the word means. If uh, let's, let's get three volunteers here. Adlon, you want to come? And then David and Tim and Sophie. All right. Let's all right, stay up here. All right. Now, do children, do you all, you all play, play tag ever? Uh, right, yeah. you play tag. And so what's the goal of tag is to tag the person. Um, there's a game, I think it's called Sardines. You all know, yeah. The adults are like, uh, what, what are you talking about? Oh, okay, we have an adult here that knows what Sardines is. It's, it's the reverse of hide and seek. It's um, uh, one person, everybody hides. One person hides and everybody's looking for that person. Uh, and then the first person, if you find the person that's hiding, then you hide with them. Okay, and so it's, it's a little, little reverse there. Let's say you're playing tag. Tim, we'll have you uh, in the middle here. And so you all spread around far fur, further out. Okay, and so uh, Tim, the best way that he can avoid not being tagged is he's got to run around them. Right? He's got to see when they're coming. He's got to discern his surrounding. And Tim, because he doesn't want to get tagged, he might get a little stressed whenever somebody gets close. Right? And they might come and they get really close and then he might just go like this. But if they all start closing in slowly, if they all start closing in, come on. If they are, come on, Sophie. Let's do it quicker for the illustration purposes. Maybe we're not going to do that again then. If they're enclosed, it means, the, the word distress means to be in a tight place. Now, if when they were all spread out like that, we could say, well, Tim has probably an easy way of escape. Um, he can run across the chairs there, right? But here, it's a pretty tight place. And so, if you all lock arms, all those who are lock arms... If, you, if they're all around Tim, okay, the word distress means to be confined to a tight place. It means even further that you're confined to such a tight place that you cannot get out. Now stay like that without, just try to stay calm without acting out, okay? So if you think about the word distress, it means... To be narrow, to be in a tight place, the word was actually often used as a military term denoting a soldier or an army or platoon that was confined to a tight place with no way of escape. Now, notice here what the psalmist says. He says, God, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. The word enlarged means this. It means to broaden. It means to make large. Uh, it means to make wide. So that is the opposite of distress, isn't it? Uh, how can someone, think about it, how can someone be in distress, that means confined to a tight place, and yet at the same time enlarged? What I'm trying to show you here is this doesn't make sense in the physical realm. If it's used uh, when it comes to battle to soldiers who are in distress, they're confined, they're in a tight place, there's no way out, they're in distress. In other words, the word distress means there's no way out, let's give up, we can't, we have to surrender. We can't do anything. We're in distress. And so we're not going to lose our lives, so we're going to give in. And so that's what the word distress means. But do you notice here, there's an expression, so he says, thou hast enlarged me, what's the next word? When I was in distress. So do you see what he's not saying? He's not saying, I was in distress, 
And you came and you broadened things for me. You enlarged me. You delivered me. And so there was no more distress. That, that's not what he's saying. Did you get that? Or come do the same thing. He says, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. So the psalmist says this. He, he comes to God. He prays, Oh God, hear my prayer. Oh God of my righteousness. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And this is what he remembers in the past. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. The distress did not cease. It's still there. But yet, the psalmist describes what God did for him that is not really understandable in the physical realm. Because you can't enlarge someone that is in distress. You can't broaden, widen, make room for them. If they're still in distress, you can't do that. But yet, when the psalmist says, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress, we know that that's where Tim is. But God says, No, you hold hands. And Tim, you come over here. And so, he says, Thou hast enlarged me. You've made room for me. You've broadened me. You've widened the path for me when I was there. So really, I was still there. But God made it such a way for me as if I was not in distress. Okay, you all can have a seat. Good job. Now, let me ask you this question. What, what, should, what should distress cause? Well, if we think, let's try to think in the physical realm. Let's try to think about a, a soldier who is in distress. He is surrounded by an army. He is confined to a tight place. There's no way of escape. Well, you could think that the soldier could be in fear. He's fearful. Why? He's going to lose his life. He, he's lost the battle. There's no way out. He is confined to such a tight place uh, that he is in fear. Uh, you could even bring about anxiety. Oh, what's going to happen? And he be can begin to panic. Why? Because he is in distress. We can think it, he can fall into depression thinking it's over. My life is over. He can become hopeless and say, all that I fought for is gone now. I've got to the place where there's no place of escape. He might even turn at some point. He, he might get angry. How did I get into this place of distress? How did I arrive here? He may even get bitter at somebody to blame for why he is there in distress. He might even feel some type of vengefulness to try to get back at someone for the reason why he is in distress. That's what you... Expect to happen when someone is in distress. But, what did the psalmist experience? Now, I'm going to skip over, we'll come back to that. But if you notice here, in verse 7, notice what he says. Thou hast put, what's the next word? Gladness in my heart, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. So when the psalmist says, I was in distress, but thou hast enlarged me, when I was in distress, whatever should happen in normal circumstances to someone who is in that place of distress, he says, what God means to me is when I was in that place, God came and made it seem to me as if I was not in that place. So, do we get the lesson here? It is not that God removed him from distress. It is that God did something for him in distress. Do you see that? So, notice verse 1 again. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. I'm... I'm I want to make sure that my heart is clean before God when I come to Him in prayer. 
And I remember, Lord, that you enlarged me. I believe one of those ways is thou hast put gladness in my heart. When I was in distress, thou hast enlarged me, broadened me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And so that's the prayer of the saints. But then we come to, we come to the preaching to the sinner. So from verse 2, as we proceed down to verse 5, he first comes to God and then he turns to the sinner. Now, this is very important. I think just a, a simple lesson here is before we get to preach to the sinner, we have to make sure that we come to God first. Because we're going to have the right measure of boldness towards men when we have the right measure of dependency on God. And so now the psalmist turns to the sinner and notice what he says in verse 2. O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing Selah? And so he pauses here. And notice here as we... I'm I'm breaking down the preaching of the sinner into um, several sections. The first one we're going to see, first of all, verse um, verse 2 is a condemnation. Then we're going to look at a contrast in verse 3. Then we're going to look at his counsel in verse 4. And then finally at his call in verse 5. Notice here, first of all, the condemnation. He brings about a condemnation to when he says, O ye sons of men, he's going, to ask, he's going to put forth this condemnation in a form of a question. Uh, by saying, How long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Now that's a direct condemnation to the sons of men. He, he condemns them for... Two things that are mentioned here, at least in our text. He says, how long, well the first one is, how long will you turn my glory into shame? Well, what does the psalmist, what did the psalmist just glory in in verse 1? He just gloried in the truth that God enlarged him while he was in distress. And so what the sons of men try to do to the psalmist is say, well, remember what the psalm before? You can't trust God. There is no help for him in God. That's what he said in the psalm just earlier. Verse, uh, uh, psalm 3, verse 2. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. And so here it's kind of in the form of a question. He condemns them for putting forth this question for what? Uh, for turning, trying to turn the glory of the psalmist. His glory is the Lord. He, that's what he said in Psalm 3. To turn that glory into shame. They're trying to prove to him while he is still in distress that there's no help for him in God. In other words, they want the psalmist to be like all other men, like them, when they're in distress. What do men naturally do when they're in distress? Well, I just listed some things. You see, they're trying to break him. And he says, how long are you going to do that? How long do you think that you will try to turn my glory into shame that you think that there's no help for me in God and I've shown to you over and over again that God has sustained me in difficulties? Well, that'll preach because if he says that to the sinner, it has to be true in our lives. And if it's not true in our lives, it can't be preached to the sinner. There's two other questions. He says... How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Uh, the word vanity means emptiness, right? Uh, without purpose. The word leasing basically means untruth, lies. And so he says here, How long will you continue to love vanity and seek af after leasing? He's basically telling them, Haven't you already been disappointed enough with yourselves? Uh, how long will you continue... To live a lie. How long will you persist in engaging in empty, frivolous, and pointless pursuits? Hasn't your soul told you enough that you will not find satisfaction in those things that are purposeless and in following lies? 
And so he's basically, the condemnation is this. It is utterly ridiculous to go on and continue like this. To try to condemn those who find their help in God and say, try to turn my glory into shame. You try to, how long will you, will you uh, love vanity? Pursue after things that are empty. And seek after listening and pursue to live a life of lies. How long? That's the condemnation. By the way, it's interesting to, to know that was the first warning in Proverbs 1. How long will they go? How long will you simple ones? Will you not hear? And so we see a condemnation, but then we come to verse 3 and we see a contrast. Notice, and, and by the way, he pauses at, 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 after verse 2 because it's a question. Now, I, I think, I believe that the Psalms, when you think of the, the, the word Selah, the Psalm, the book of Psalms, was the hymn book of the Hebrews. And that Selah often would be an instrumental pause where people would sing and then they would pause. Why? To think about what, what the words that they just said. I wonder maybe sometimes we should do that when we sing. Sometimes we do that. We, we may uh, sing a, a, a hymn and then we, we go back and we say, well, look at what this verse says. What are we doing? We are pausing. Let's, let's think about what we just sung about. And then he sets forth a contrast in verse 3. And so now he is still addressing the sons of men. He says, but know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. So, notice he mentions that now, verse 1, he says, Lord, hear me. But then when he addresses the sons of men, he wants them to know something. He wants them to know that when he calls, God will hear him. And notice what he says. He wants them to know something in verse 3. Know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for, what's the next word? Himself. In other words, the psalmist says, You sons of men, don't, don't you know that I'm a child of God? And that God hears me? God has set me apart for Himself. That's what God does, by the way, with His people. You see... In the world, we are in the world, but we are not of the world. Why? Because we are the children of God. And we have been set apart. And so that's why when we call on our Father, He hears us. And so He, he wants them, but no, know this. That would be a convicting call for someone who has nobody to call to. Who do you call when you're in distress? O sinner that loves vanity and seeks after leasing. You who try to turn my glory into shame, who do you call on when you're in distress? Or do you give yourself over to fear and anxiety and hopelessness and depression and anger and bitterness? But then we have a counsel in verse 4. And so there he's still talking to the sons of men and he says this in verse 4. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Now, now notice here, Now I, I know I've quoted this verse before. And I mentioned that this is a good thing for us to do as God's people, but here he is talking to the sons of men. Uh, to those here that, if you think about it, are those who are loving vanity, that are seeking after leasing, who are turning uh, the glory of the psalmist into shame. And so he counsels them. And the counsel is actually uh, quite important to those who are in the world. And I was thinking here, about what he, he counsels them to do. And I thought that's a good counsel for the world today. You see, we live in a world, and I think that probably because of all that we have in our world, it's very difficult for people to do just that right there. 
standing on, sin not, communing with your own heart, on bed, and be still. You see, because now we could think, okay, well, uh, someone who works hard needs to have rest, right? Needs to, you know, stand still for for a while, and that, that's good for him. And uh, rest is good. Uh, certainly is good. Work is good too. But think about the world we live in. You may you may get up in the morning. I got it right here. You may get up in the morning, and the first thing you hear is, "Bing." Breaking news. And then you click that button right there, and then you see, oh, article. And then you read that article, and then it puts a link to another article. And pretty soon then there's, it opens up, and now you, you have at your, your fingertips thousands upon thousands of articles that you can spend your entire morning, and then while you're uh, flipping through your phone, then you get your breakfast, and then you get your shower, and you clean yourself up, and... I said, well, before I go to work, let me just like quick pray, quick prayer to God here. Lord, bless this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me try to read a verse here. Okay. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Okay, we're good. I'm going to think about that verse all day. And then you get in your car and you turn on the radio. And then the radio, you hear all the things that are going on in the world and you get consumed by all those things that are going on. And then you show up to work and then there's problems over here, problems over here. And maybe if it's physical labor, you have to think about how am I going to solve this problem if you deal with people all the time or you're teaching, you're constantly thinking about the people that you're talking to and the questions that you're answering and you go on and on and on through the day and then you at the end of the day you, you know, well actually break time uh, you have lunch and then you, you're with your co-workers and you eat with people and you fellowship with them and you talk with them and then you go back to your job and then when it's the end of work you're, you're exhausted you think well let, let's just turn this radio on let's find out either listen to some music or, or listen to the news and then you get home and then well maybe it's time for dinner and you eat dinner and you go on and maybe Maybe then you turn the, the television on, the, the I'll say it, the stinking television on to hear the next news uh, article that comes and you got to go maybe on YouTube and listen to a few videos or maybe listen to a few things that make you laugh and pretty uh, soon it's getting pretty late in the evening and maybe you got to do a few things around the house and then you're so exhausted you maybe take a shower before you go to bed and then you're so exhausted you get, get to bed and you fall asleep and there's been not one opportunity of silence and of stillness in your entire day. And the way the world is today, it is so difficult to do that because we have everything at our fingertips and we can do so many things and yet miss the greatest thing. There is a colon. So notice he says, stand in awe and sin not. Now, I think those go together. In other words, um, the expression stand in awe means to quiver and to tremble. That's, that, you could look up, that's what the word literally means. Stand in awe. It means to quiver, to tremble. But then he says stand in awe and sin not. And so he basically says if you tremble and quiver in the sight of God, then you're not going to sin. And the reason why you sin is because you don't tremble before God. That's what that means. Stand in awe and sin not. In other words, those go together. Many are those who sin and tremble not. Those who will not sin are indeed those who do tremble. And so, he says, stand in awe and sin not. But then there's a colon there, which means... This is how you do it. How do you get to the place where you tremble and quiver before God? How, 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 how do you actually do this practically? The psalmist tells us here, and this is most helpful. Here's what he says. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Do you, do you want to know the greatest way you can kind of quiver and tremble at God so you can stop sinning? Have a period of communion with your heart and being still. I've just solved most problems in America. Uh, no, let me rephrase that. God's Word has just solved 
all most problems in America. You know why people don't tremble and go on sinning and sinning and going on and on and on and on? Because they never stop. And do you know why they don't want to stop? Because they don't want to tremble. The word commune, commune with your own heart upon your bed, the word commune means this, to say, to answer. Do you get it? Commune with your own heart upon your bed. That means when nobody else is around, talk to yourself. Answer your heart. How are you doing? How did the day go? Go back. Think. Is your heart pure before God? Uh, Psalm 77 verse 6 puts it that way. I call to remembrance my son in the night. I commune with my own heart and my spirit made diligent search. Do you get that? I commune with my own heart and then when I, 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 I talked to my heart, I answered my heart, my spirit made diligent search. You see, there is not going to be an opportunity for us to tremble before God and then therefore not to go on sinning and sinning and sinning until we get to the place where we talk to our hearts and say, Spirit, would you search if there's anything that is wicked in me? I wonder if the reason why many people are not just simply communing with their own heart is because they know what their heart will say. Their own heart will condemn them. But notice, he says, commune with your own heart upon your bed. Now, what do we know about the heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So, if our heart is desperately wicked, we know that's what the heart is. But what if we never pause and look at the heart? We ignore that it's deceitful and desperately wicked. We, we don't commune, we don't, we don't talk, we don't examine, we don't speak, we don't answer. And so if we don't speak and we don't answer and we don't call, then there is no opportunity, no window for God to work. So he says, commune with your own heart upon your bed. What's the next words? And be still. Now, it's interesting, he says, commune which means to talk, to answer. And then he says, be still. The word be still literally means to be dumb. That means don't speak. <laughs> it means to stop. So, this is what he says. Commune with your own heart, talk to yourself, answer your heart, and then say nothing. In other words, then take the opportunity just to be silent, to be still. Don't speak anymore. Stop. Be still means it's a place where you hold your peace. It's a place of silence. It is a place of stillness. I want to take you to two verses. Turn with me to Psalm 46, verse 10. Psalm 46, verse 10. Psalm 46.10. What's the first two words? Be still and know that I am God. Now, you could have just said, know that I am God. No, he says first, be still and know that I am God. It's as if you cannot get to the place where you know that He is God unless you're still first. In other words, what? Silent. In the place of stillness and silence. Habakkuk 2.20 says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. 
Stand in awe and sin not. Okay. Tremble, quiver before the Lord. That will help you not sin. How do we do it? Commune with your own heart upon your bed. Good practice. You get to the end of your day. Sit down. I know some of you, if you're married, you share a bed with your, with your spouse. But if you maybe have a place before you go in there. Excuse me. <coughs> excuse me. It might be good just to, at night, before you go to sleep, to commune with your own heart. And answer and to speak to your heart and say, How did I do today? Lord, how did my heart do today? Now he's asking the sinner to do that. That's what he, oh, you sons of men. Would you stop and commune with your heart upon your bed? And then, and then when you speak to your heart, then keep silence. God speaks in the silence. We first speak, we commune, and then stillness, God speaks. And when God speaks, what's the result when God speaks? We tremble. Isn't that what happens when God speaks? Uh, it should happen when God speaks. And then I think we can stand in awe before God and then go on not sinning. You see, we have to be made aware that we, we're not going to stop sinning without getting a clear view of ourselves and a clear view of God. A clear view of ourselves comes when we commune with our hearts and a clear view of God comes when we sit still when we are still in silence. And that's the place when we tremble and sin not. Now he's telling that to O ye sons of men. Now I'm assuming here that everybody is as far as I know is a born again Christian. You've place your faith in Jesus Christ and you are a saint, you're a child of God. But if you're not, the psalmist is directly appealing to those who love vanity and seek after leasing. Those who try to turn His glory into shame. God can make a big difference in the world if people just stop People go, 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 go. You know, even people, think about it for just a moment. Even people who don't work, they go from one thing to the next. Now, for them, it might be from one app to the next, from one TV show to the next, from one, right? They just sit in their home doing nothing. They think, oh, they're still not staying out of trouble. No, but that's not stillness and silence. There's always something going on. And if people just learn to stop, examine themselves, stand before God and Commune with your heart and be still. And so that's good counsel, by the way. Good counsel. Anybody that's struggling with anything, frustrated with life, a good counsel, you want to turn into a good counselor to someone that's dealing with difficulties, say, well, how about you tonight just see how your heart's doing and then just be quiet. Maybe see if God speaks to you. But then we see a call. So that was a counsel, but then we see a call. Do you notice verse 5? He says, now there's a pause there after verse 4. Again, so that we can think about what, what he just mentioned. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now the psalmist, he declares in the psalm that he is trusting the Lord. But here he is encouraging the sons of men to put their trust in the Lord. Notice he says, would you, after what? After you tremble before God, after you commune with your own heart upon your bed, after you're still, then God has spoken to you. You stand before God. Would you offer the sacrifices of righteousness and would you put your trust in the Lord? You see, 
He's saying to them, go to the place of sacrifice, and when you get to the place of sacrifice, put your trust in the Lord. So it's a place of what? It's a place of repentance and faith. Just like Paul preached in Acts. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. Here he says, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. That's repentance. Put your trust in the Lord. That's faith. Note the words, offer the sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. I think there's a lot of people who fit in the first half. There's the guilt. They know they're not right with God. And so they, they may be repentant. They, they, they may feel guilt. They may feel bad for their sin. But they never trust the Lord. Now, translation, we could do that in the Christian life as well. We can go on in our lives and feel bad when we sin. Instead of doing what John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 1.9 tells us, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not just about feeling bad for the sins that we've done in our life. We have to come to God and trust in the Lord. And He will forgive us. So it's a place of repentance and faith. I came across this poem that was written, and I think it summarizes this psalm well. The person who wrote this, and I I forgot to write it down, but he wrote this, he says, Sinner... Is thy heart at rest? Is thy bosom void of fear? Art thou not by guilt oppressed? Speaks not conscience in thine ear? Can this world afford thee bliss? Can it chase away thy gloom? A flattering, false, and vain it is. Tremble at the worldling's doom. Think, O sinner, on thy end. See the judgment day appear. Thither must thy spirit wend. There thy righteous sentence bear. Wretched, ruined, helpless soul. To a Savior's blood blood apply. He alone can make thee whole. Fly to Jesus, sinner, fly. You see, the psalmist basically says... I know what I have found in God. And you can find the same. You who are oppressing me, you who are trying to turn my glory into shame, you, God, you offer to God the sacrifice of righteousness and you put your trust in the Lord and you will know exactly what I know. But it's interesting that He says this when he is in distress. Isn't that interesting? That perhaps the greatest opportunity that the psalmist has to bear witness to Christ or to God is when he is in distress. That's when he does it here. But we come to the last point, that is the pattern of the satisfied. Notice verse 6. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Now notice here, he, he brought and so he says, oh, you sons of men. But he says, there be many who, 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 that say, who will show us any good? That, by the way, that, that's still what the world says today. Is there, is there any good out in the world? Is there any good left? Is there any way we can find peace? Is there any way we can get along? Is there any way we can uh, get rid of wars and and sickness? Is Is there any way? That's a good question. Is there any good? Can we find good anywhere? And the psalmist says, yes. Notice verse verse 6. Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. He's saying here, God... Show us who you are. Now notice, after he just told them to do what? Stand and on, sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. And so he says, Lord, lift. Now notice here, the pattern of the satisfied is this. He's basically saying, would you see the goodness of the Lord? Would you see the goodness of the Lord? 
Now, do you notice here the wording that the psalmist uses? He says, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. We can't make God do anything. In the sense here that he's not trying to say, well, God, you're not shining bright enough, so could you be brighter in the world? Could you show yourself more in the world? I don't think that's what he's saying. When he says, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us, I think he's just saying, would you help us realize, would you help men realize that you're good? Those who may blaspheme your name, would you help them see that you are indeed good? You see, there is nothing that we can do to add to the glory of God, to add to the goodness of God, but there is much we can do in ourselves recognizing His glory and His goodness. And that's what men need more of. God has already shown Himself to be good and faithful and true. Men just need to see it. Then we see, so we see the goodness of the Lord, but then he says, Know the gladness of the Lord. Verse 7, he says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart. Now he, he mentioned in verse 6, it's broad. He mentions us at the end of verse 6. Us, you see that? But now verse 7, he testifies again and says, Well, this is what God has done for me personally. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increase. So he says, see the goodness of the Lord. And then he says, know the gladness of the Lord. Now, I think the reason why he changes from us to me is that he doesn't know what the other person over here has experienced. But he knows what he has experienced. He just said in verse 1, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. So the psalmist says, I know what God has done for me. Now God is good. He is good. By the way, He is good whether we recognize it or not. But you know what He wants to do? Something that He can do personally? Is He can put gladness in our hearts while we are in distress. That's what it means, I believe, to be enlarged. God puts gladness in our hearts. Now, if you, do you notice here, uh, you know, I know psychology in the world, but notice here verse 7, thou hast, what's the next word? Put. The psalmist didn't say, well, I generated Gladness in my heart. I mustered it up. I concocted a bunch of things. And then poof. Gladness came. No. Gladness. Is something that God puts. In our hearts. So if we're going to get gladness. is not by us trying to make ourselves happy, see how we can arrange and order our lives so that we can be glad and happy. No, it is something that God does and He puts it in us while we're in distress. That's what, only God can do that. Only a Christian in the world can bear a testimony of what God has put inside of his heart in the midst of distress. Only God can do that. He says, he compares it, he says, more, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. So you see what he says here, he, when I was in distress, the Lord enlarged me. He says, the Lord put gladness in my heart. And he says, more than in the time that there, who, well, probably the, the sons of men, I guess he's talking about here in the context, well, when the sons of men 
When they get a good harvest of corn, you know what happens? They're glad. Whoa! Look at all this corn we got. Wow. Or, and their wine increased. Wow, look at the vines, the overflowing. We have more wine than we've ever had before. Wow. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Do you see what the psalmist says? The gladness that God put in my heart is much greater than any gladness that is ever experienced in the world because of temporal prosperity. I just have one question here in all seriousness. Do we know that type of gladness? Or is the gladness in our lives similar to the gladness that the world experiences out of temporal prosperity? That when things are going well in our lives, in the physical realm, that we are glad and when things are not, we are not glad and we have no idea what it means that God put gladness in our hearts in time of distress? That's convicting. And so he says, See the goodness of the Lord, know the gladness of the Lord. But then lastly, verse 8, he says, Experience the benefit of the Lord. So here's the, the benefit of what God does. God puts gladness in the heart. Here is what then he experiences as a result. Verse 8, I will both, so two things happen, lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Now, the word safety here, another word for safety is the word refuge. Now, the book of Psalms talks a lot about the Lord is my refuge and strength, a present help in time of trouble. Uh, Psalm uh, 91, Psalm 94 mentioned those. So the word here means refuge. Now, if you notice at the end, he says, the Lord, for thou, Lord, notice the word only. That, if you mark your Bible, I don't know if you do this out of it, but that would be a good word to circle only. Makest me dwell in safety. In other words, our only refuge in the world is in God. The one who is our present help in time of trouble whenever we need it is God. He's always there. But I want to bring your attention back to the two benefits the Lord gives. What is enjoyed? Verse 8. I will both, two things, lay me down in peace and sleep. So there's two things there. One is spiritual, one is physical. Uh, let's start with the physical. Sleep, that's physical. Now, <clears throat> rest is good. God, God appointed rest. We need rest. If we work... You get rejuvenated by rest. You get your strength back by rest. Soul rest is important. There's no doubt about it. But wait a minute. Which one comes first? Do you notice the order? I will both lay me down in what? Peace. And sleep. So I think there's a lot of people who may sleep, but who may not have peace. But I think there's a lot of people who have peace and sleep. And that sleep is much better with peace than it is without. So see, this is the spiritual realm here, but there's both a physical rest and there's also spiritual peace. Spiritual peace comes first. Now, notice there's a colon there, same thing. In verse 8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, what's the basis of this? For thou only makest me dwell in safety. When God alone is our place of refuge, we have peace. And then we can sleep. We get the spiritual benefit and the physical benefit in our lives when we learn. That is the pattern of the satisfied. See the goodness of the Lord. Know the gladness of the Lord 
and experience the benefit of the Lord. So go back, going back to verse 1, can we say with the psalmist, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. You see, I fear that what we might try to do is we might pray for God to do away with the distress so that we might be enlarged. But what we learn is that we are enlarged in distress. Distress. 